0: And the other thing is, all of us who want to do things that are challenging, we're going to face times where we can't handle what's in front of us. And if you're not, that means you're not at your limit, right? It means you're staying small. Well, when we hit that limit, what do we need, Andrew? You already know, and the answer is friends, help, community.
1: What is it that I'm actually looking for? Do We really know life. Sure. But let me say intelligence. Emotional intelligence, social intelligence, financial intelligence. So I believe it's important for each and every one of us to understand the rules that govern in arena of your life. You are listening to The Revenge of the Forsaken Gods, a podcast that explores a human experience and seeks to create a blueprint for a living using books, stories, movies, and conversations. And I am your host, Andrew Balongo O'Parent. Now, today, I am thrilled to introduce my guest. He's an executive consultant, award-winning author, and regular guest lecturer at the Yale School of Management and Yale Leadership Institute. He works with leaders in technology, media, and government to make them more effective in creating change. I recently had the privilege of reviewing his book, which I found to be an easy read, very conversational, and packed with solid content. I reviewed the book at my League of Young Professionals, Readers and Leaders Book Club, before an audience of 50 people. The book made me feel amazed, optimistic, and empowered. And I'm not surprised that it won the Nautilus Silver Award in Business and Leadership. Without further ado, let me represent that book, The Art of Community. And the author, my guest, Charles H. Vogel. Well, thank you for welcoming me, Andrew. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm so excited. It's like I'm meeting a real life uh, Napoleon Hill. Well, I'm real life.
0: Uh, I don't know how much like Napoleon Hill I am today, but I promise uh, it doesn't get better than uh, this when you meet me. This is, you're getting the whole thing.
1: Yes, especially um, going through your book. I connected with it so much. You articulated so much that I felt in terms of feeling disconnected with some groups and feeling connected with another group, but I really could not find the language and you mm. helped me articulate that language. Like mm-hmm. for example, your story when you served in the US Peace Corps in your twenties and you had that guy, you know, tell you that if you don't drink, I don't trust people that don't drink. And you know, you, you also, by the way, um, You have a production company, the Broken English Productions, and you actually did produce a documentary with your wife. Well, it shows your girlfriend at the time, right? At the
0: time, we were not married, yes.
1: (laughs) And, you know, it's interesting to see how your documentary... Um, What was the name of the documentary you
0: did? I work in several documentaries. The film that you're referring to is entitled New Year Baby. And it was a film that was financed by and then distributed by the United States Public Broadcasting Service, or PBS. And it tells the story of her family's escape from the Cambodian genocide and their journey to become
1: Americans. And how is that process like?
0: Well, the process of making that film when I started in my 20s, wait, literally waiting tables in New York City uh, was a big part of the journey that I was on that taught me how to bring people together around shared purpose and value. Um, I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the connections. I didn't have the know how (laughs) to make a film that would go on to be shared around the world in more than one country because it was relevant and had something to say that was healing. I had none of those things. Um, And I was on the journey of learning how to do that. And I remember mentors of mine explained to me when I was exhausted and desperate and didn't know if I could do anything of any merit whatsoever, sharing what I needed to get good at was bringing people together who did have those skills and resources and wanted to participate with me in creating something that was meaningful. And so what I had to get good at was bringing people together with shared values and shared purpose and let us feel connected. And I didn't have enough money to pay people what they were worth or what other people would pay them. Uh, the reason they wanted to work with me is because they actually understood that we together would create something meaningful. And we were doing that because we cared about the same things. And we were connected and we cared about one another more than any transactional relationship. And the 7 years we worked on making that film and sharing it around the world, really was a crucible for me to learn that because all of my success depended on me being able to do that. If I did everything else well and I couldn't do that, Andrew, uh, my work wouldn't be seen by the world. If I could do that really well and was marginal everything else, my work probably wouldn't be very good, (laughs) but there was a shot that we could create something bigger than any one of us could.
1: And do you find that uh, you got resistance in people sharing their story? Because I know that was really sensitive information.
0: Yeah. Whenever we approach somebody that we don't have a solid relationship with yet, and we, we are asking them to share themselves so we can share it to strangers, at least strangers to them, uh, there's a process of building trust. And hopefully, it's a real process, which is to say, hopefully, there really is trust built. And that there's an honoring both ways. And so on all the documentary films we've ever worked at, who we invite to tell their story and how we do that and how we honor their participation is always a very lively conversation. And in some cases, I know filmmakers who have been invited to witness and know about uh, unlawful activities that their subjects are participating in. And maybe they're doing it to keep their health, i.e. they're trying to get drugs that they shouldn't have their hands on. Or maybe they're doing things to get money to keep their family safe that are illegal. And there's always the question, um, how much gets shared? And then how much do the participants understand that they're at risk if those things are shared? And there are no hard and fast answers. Uh, if there were, then there'd be no conversation. There'd be a pamphlet on this. Uh, but my point is building that trust, honoring it, and weaving that into whatever's getting created is a big part of it.
1: Wow. Wow. Yes. And uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, also another interesting thing that uh, I found out about you is that you earned your master in divinity. and. Actually, your first book, you cover a lot of the principles that you learned from uh, your coursework, uh, from your masters, because you covered religion, you covered philosophy, you covered ethics. And tell me a little bit, because I noticed in your coursework, you mentioned that uh, you learned, for example, how Jews coalesced uh, within a hostile empire or how the Anabaptists stood up to the Roman Catholic Church at a horrific cost or how the Jains maintain radical compassion in a violent world. When you're doing your research and classwork, what were some of the traits you saw that they were able to have the group still function despite that hostility? What could we learn from them that could even apply now Mm -hmm. as we're experiencing (coughs) this pandemic? Maybe as individuals, as our family members, what could businesses learn and what could the government learn in support? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, golly, there's literally a whole book on this, Andrew. So for the purposes of the podcast, <laughs> we'll just touch on a couple of things. Of sure. all the groups you mentioned, one of the things that we noticed is when there's tough times, they know who's on the inside and the outside. Uh, that does not mean that if somebody's in the outside, we treat them poorly. In fact, just the opposite. In all those traditions, taking care of the stranger in need is very important. It's the opposite of treating them poorly. And when our people, our community, and that could be our family or that could be our village, is in danger. We know who's on the inside, and the outside. We know that if someone's on the inside, that we will extend resources to help them. And in some cases, when there's existential threat, maybe even all the resources will go to save even one person because we're going to do the because we're going to stick together. Now, the question that hangs in the air: Well, then why do we need to know who's on the inside and the outside if we're going to treat people on the outside well as well? If uh, we're going to take care of the strangers sick on the side of the road. Well, the answer is, if you want to create a strong community, it's very hard to do that if you don't know who's on the inside of the community. You don't know where to invest there. That doesn't mean you don't invest or ignore people on the outside. We can just notice, uh, for example, in a family and, and in a family that lives in a village together, as my, villagers, my fellow villagers did in the Peace Corps. Um. Who are you inviting to spend time with you? Who are you inviting to share meals? Who are you checking and make sure they have enough to eat? Who are you willing to take to a doctor in a moment's notice if they need it? Who have you told you will take them to a doctor in a moment's notice if they need it? Um, hopefully somebody. Hopefully there's above zero people in your community. If you don't uh, have those people and you're not telling them, then you're probably not building a strong community. Now, if a stranger outside your house and they need to get to a doctor. Does that mean you don't take them to the hospital? Absolutely not. Right. But we can notice, uh, do the people in your community hear from you no less than once a year, hopefully more often when you need help, I want you to call. And if you don't call, you're keeping me from being the friend I want to be. So that's one area. Uh, And one of the ways we know who's on the inside and the outside is initiation. And my guess in your family, Andrew, even if you invite me to the biggest festival in Kenya, and I'm allowed to celebrate with your family, my guess is me showing up from Oakland, California, and participating in that festival doesn't make me a part of your family. Doesn't sure. matter if I stay in your house, doesn't matter if I share the meals, doesn't matter if I do the dances, I'm not in your family. If I marry somebody in your family, one of your sisters or one of your cousins, maybe I'm in your family. Okay? Now that doesn't mean I'm a bad person and not welcome before I do the marriage. But let's be really clear. There's an initiation I have to go through to be in your family, even if you invite me to participate in meals and festivals and dances.
1: True.
0: Which is to say, you know who's in the family and you know who's not, and they're different. Okay, so that's an initiation. Another thing we can notice is that there are rituals. There are things that we can do together that have meaning. And we can talk a lot about rituals. There are whole books written on rituals. So for right now, we'll talk about the fact that we want to know that the people in our community, family, villagers, coworkers, we want to know that they see how we're changing and that we're changing or said differently, they notice our maturation. And my guess is everybody in your family you're really close to and you're part of a family community, you have done things that have shown you that they recognize that you, Andrew, are far more mature now than you were when you were 15 years old. Sure. And that makes you feel closer to them. And imagine if everybody listening to this podcast had 15 people in their lives that have participated in rituals, be those celebrations or dances or retreats or religious ceremonies, that they know that those 15 people recognize how they're maturing and changing. We're maturing and changing and we're no longer as we were when we were 15. That would be really, really powerful. Yes. So this is a couple things that we can pull from these thousands of years of tradition and say, well, how does that relevant to people that I'm connected with? What are the rituals that we're celebrating how we're changing? How are we making sure that we're sending the invitations that make us connected on the inside? And we're making sure those, you know, binds are connected. And then we could even talk about one last one, the temple principle, this idea that strong communities have a place they can go to where they know they'll find their community. And typically those temples are sacred. And all I mean by sacred is they're set aside. Uh, Things happen there that don't happen elsewhere. And things that do happen elsewhere don't happen inside the temple. My guess, Andrew, is if you invite me to the biggest festival in Kenya, and I'm allowed to share several days with your family at that festival, um, there are things I'm going to see in that space with your family that I'm not going to see elsewhere. And there are probably things that you and I could do elsewhere that I better not do in front of your aunties (laughs) and your mom at that festival. Right? It doesn't mean we can't do it. We can't (laughs) do it somewhere else at the time, but not there said differently, you're going to invite me to a sacred space for your family. And I'm welcome, but I need to understand, Charles, the space is special. Well, one of the things we can ask ourselves when we want to build a community, being that a company or government or philanthropy or church is, where is our special space? When is it special? And who are we inviting into, into it? And I talked to a, a school leader who came up to me after a workshop and said, oh my goodness, after your workshop, I recognize we're not giving certain groups in our school space. They don't have a space to gather it that doesn't mean they have to have it 24 hours a day every day of the year but we're just telling them oh go to the computer and pick a space that's open and they don't have a space that's theirs that they can go to that's protected and they know they'll meet each other no kidding they're not that connected imagine if your family had nowhere to go to where you knew you could show up and they'd be there and that it was protected and special your family would be less connected period because you don't have a strong temple
1: Wow. In fact, that's one of the things that stood out to me about your book. It made me realize a lot of people have said, yeah, show me the five people that that you're hanging around with and I'll show you who you are. But literally your book, I believe is a missing book that every person on the planet needs to get. It's actually showing me how to create a family. Mm -hmm. It's actually showing me how to create friendship, my hobbies, my business, any group that I want to create. You actually... Show the building blocks. And I love all the questions that you bring, even in your book. And uh, I'd like even to go to my next point to, you have a, a st- something about storytelling. Mm-hmm. And there's something that I believe you even touched upon as you mentioned that, which I believe is missing. That how the whole structure, there's mentorship incorporated in all of the principles. And which I, I tend to notice is something that's missing. Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Cause I noticed you talk about vulnerability.
0: Yeah. So in mature communities, and that can be your family, hope for your family's mature. I'm not going to judge it. Andrew, you, you'll know how mature you are.
1: And what do you uh, define as a mature community as opposed to a community that something that's
0: developed, that's not just kind of figuring out who it is or what it is or why you're there or what you're doing, but you have a sense of why we gather. We know who's gathering. We know what we're trying to accomplish when we gather. And by the way, Coming together just to create supportive friendships totally counts. I hope you have friends from school. When you get together, all you're doing is maintaining and strengthening supportive friendships. Mm -hmm. Totally counts. (laughs) Other people get together only to build, develop business leads. Maybe that's not bad, but you don't want to get together with them twice a week for two hours, right? (laughs) Maybe once a month, right? We would simply to say that's a different purpose. So in a mature community, we find their elders, and elders doesn't necessarily mean older. It often means that, but it doesn't necessarily mean older. Elder means that they have something to teach to help other people grow in who they want to be. And usually the teaching goes both ways. But you know, clearly, if I go to a Kenyan uh, festival, I'm not going to know how to participate fully in the Kenyan festival because you have more experience. So in that situation, you would be my elder in including me in that community, right? So we have these elders, and the elders aren't there to use the younger members as servants or simply to gloat about how they're better than the new people. You've been places where that happens, and you probably had an entirely appropriate reaction. Hmm. In the kind of communities I'm talking about, the elders are there, at least in part, to help others grow in who they want to be. And uh, you and I talked before we started recording about how one of the things we've recognized now when we look at leadership around the world is the importance of vulnerability. And all we mean about that is that people are sharing things about them that aren't perfect and that overwhelmingly we have a fear that if people learn that about us, they might reject us. And different cultures relate to vulnerability differently. So there's no one formula on how you share vulnerability. But for those of us who want to be in some kind of leadership, formal or informal we need to recognize that if there's no vulnerability people largely can't connect with us and if you think of who your heroes are andrew you don't yes. need to tell me who they are but your top five in any area of iron your man. life an iron man okay fantastic iron man is um, a good example he's a mythic hero of a contemporary uh, story we know that iron man has failings we know he can't control his drinking. We know that he can't be polite to his family members. We know that he um, can't even keep friends to people who want to work with him. We know he breaks a lot of stuff while he's trying to create something that's going to help the world. We know that he almost kills himself regularly and that scares his girlfriend and then eventually spies the spouse to death. True. Right. All of these things are failings of his. Now he didn't necessarily stand up in the films and share these things. But one of the reasons that you can connect with him is you know he is not just a super rich, super smart guy who's good at building things and fighting enemies. There are all these things that a sane person might say, I don't want to be friends with you. You drink too much, you're dangerous, you break things, you hurt people, and people who do care about you don't know if you're going to stay safe. So Iron Man is a great example where we need to recognize people need to see that we don't think we're perfect all the time or even that we're pretending that. Now, there's at least two different kinds of cultures. And I learned this when I visited Rice University and their leadership program there. There's so-called honor culture where largely men are trying to keep their honor. In the United States, we largely see that in the Southern United States. And then um, we know that we see this um, in some Arab countries. And I don't know how prominent this is in places like Kenya, where you are now. But in that culture, men need to protect their honor. And even if someone doesn't hurt someone physically or threaten them physically, there's a sense the honor has to be protected. And if they don't protect it, there'll be problems. And this is more nuanced than I'm describing now, but I'm just acknowledging it's a culture. And in that culture, men are largely told, don't show any vulnerability because somehow that's dishonorable. Now, I'm not here to say what's honorable and dishonorable and telling people what they shouldn't do. But here's what we can acknowledge. If you grow as a man and learn, I don't show vulnerability. And we know that vulnerability is requisite for people to feel connected, both people who may want to follow you to make a film that changes the world or start a podcast that will help form a generation of entrepreneurs. Then we're limiting how much we can connect with people and our effectiveness. And so we need to notice, well, what am I willing to share and how, how am I willing to share it so I don't miss out on that? And the other thing is, all of us who want to do things that are challenging, we're going to face times where we can't handle what's in front of us. And if you're not, that means you're not at your limit right? Means you're staying small.
1: True. Well,
0: when we hit that limit, what do we, Andrew, you already know. And the answer is friends, help, help yes. community. Yes. Well, if you're living your life, not sharing any vulnerability like Iron Man does, and you don't have those friends who are connected to you, how are you going to get that help? And the answer is like, we don't. And we see yeah. we're in the United States. We're seeing record suicide rates, largely correlated with people feeling isolated and alone. So we need to train men, at least men, to understand part of being a mature leadership man is sharing at some level how you're not perfect, how you're failing, how you're facing your limits, just like Iron Man. Yes. right. I mean, Iron Man in the first film stood up in front of untold millions of people at a press conference and said, in so many words, my life has been led so wrong, I'm going to stop selling weapons because I see the horror of it. I was wrong and I need to change my whole life he admitted failure for an entire life in the first film and now he's one of your favorite characters. How many, how many people do you know are willing to stick to stand up and say, I was wrong my entire adult life and have to change my life accordingly.
1: Not a lot, not
0: very many, but if someone did and they're doing it because they shared your values and they were working on a purpose you wanted to help them with, my guess is you would feel immensely connected with them.
1: Definitely. Definitely.
0: So uh, now sharing vulnerability isn't just something you turn on a switch and it ends. We learn how to do it culturally, <laughs> you know, you know, culturally appropriate and that's going to look different in honor culture than the other culture, which as I was told is dignity culture and a dignity culture, which for example, we see that among New Yorkers, um, New Yorkers aren't really worried about defending their honor, right? You can call them names and they just might laugh at you and people call it thick skin. The way it was explained to me was because there's a sense that we have an in, inherent dignity and you can insult me, but I'm not going to let your uninformed words erode my dignity. I just think you're ridiculous because you don't know me, and your insults are probably unwarranted. And so Makes that's why sense. it seems funny because you just look like you're wasting your time to me, <laughs> right? And so New Yorker's like, I don't care. Sense, yeah. <laughs> like you, you just look stupid. <laughs> uh, and so it's easier to show some vulnerability in that dignity culture because there isn't that honor to protect, and they're just different cultures. One isn't fundamentally the right way to lead uh Mm. and so someone who's willing to share their vulnerability in a dignity culture is going to have to modify that for an honor culture but we can acknowledge as we're growing in leadership we gotta look how are we letting people know we are honestly not perfect we honestly fail and there are honestly parts of of us that uh if people knew about it some people would want to abandon us just like some people would not want to be the friend of tony stark alcoholic you know violent Mm. uh violent, drunk, and, um, you know, a reckless engineer who will break precious things.
1: Yes. But if you look at, uh, in, in larger context, because of him, you know, yes, he failed with Ultron, but because of him, we got vision. But isn't that what parenting is like? You know, we can't create or being an entrepreneur. We talk about success all the time, but the reality is for us to get that knowledge or wisdom from success, we have to break some eggs. And it's yeah, it's a
0: balance. Uh, there, we need to acknowledge that for us to grow, we have to fail. Um, I don't know anybody who's, uh, you know, I'm a cook, Andrew, and I, I cook really well now. Uh, anybody who cooks knows there's only one road to good food, and that's a lot of bad food. And if you start cooking the first day and you don't want to burn an egg, (laughs) right? Uh, then you'll never become a good cook. You just have to make bad food. There's no road. And that's true in much of life. The other part of that lesson we have to mention for people like you and me, speaking to others who are growing, is we need to say at what cost. I mean, it's okay for me to burn an egg. It's not okay for me to burn down the house. Yes. And when I hear some people talk about, Hey, go fail until you succeed. I heard one young (laughs) entrepreneur here in the Bay area saying there is no failure. There's just lessons learned. It's like, "Mm, I don't know, man, if you're learning to cook in my kitchen, you burn down my house. I'm going to call that a mistake. And and quite frankly, you didn't do that right because I would like to cook in my house after you burn the egg. And I can't after you burn down my house. That's true. So we need to acknowledge what are we putting at risk? Who are we putting at risk? And are we being responsible as we fail? That doesn't mean don't fail. In fact, go fail. Make sure you're thinking about who you're failing and at what cost.
1: Wow. So it's such powerful questions. And, uh, you know, I think even this can lead into a thing that you normally call the inner rings principle. You mentioned that uh, we all want to be special to someone or several someone's, and we all want to be valued and be valuable. So we always try to get into these exclusive clubs or groups that will allow us to be uh, of value and uh, so that we can feel precious. But you, but you did mention that there's a, uh, there's a dark side to, to that, a trap. Would you mind talking about that?
0: Sure. Well, this is an idea I learned from CS Lewis and his teachings in the mid 20th century. And he's going to articulate this idea that all of us who, who are normal, want to be part of what he called an inner ring this idea that there's a group of people that's exclusive that's cooler than the group of people we're already hanging out with and my guess is everybody listening to us right now andrew has at a time wanted to be part of some other group they weren't a part of that was cooler than their group and that's normal but he says that one of the things we can notice is whenever we do get an in inner ring we always always have the same experience and that is we discover There's an even cooler inner ring than the one we're now in. And then we want to get into that one. And guess what, Andrew, if we get into that ring, what's our experience, right? Another cooler inner ring. ring. (laughs) Now, let us be really clear. He's not saying, and we're not saying, don't be part of groups of people that can enrich you, can be supportive, and are going to help you grow into who you want to be. We're not saying that. We're just saying notice where you just want to be in another... Group that's cooler. And he says, because the experience is always the same, it's a trap. We're always going to be trapped in trying to be in a cooler group. Said differently, in a more poetic way, until you give up the fear of being an outsider, an outsider, you will remain.
1: Ooh, hold on. Until you in give cent- up the fear. <laughs> play that. Yeah.
0: Until you give up the fear of being an outsider, an outsider, you will remain. Right? Wow. When I'm in my group and I really want to get to another group that's cooler than the Andrew group, <laughs> I'm afraid of being an outsider to another group. Said differently, I'm not okay with being in Andrew's group. Mm. Well, what a lousy way to live your life? Always afraid you're not in some other group and you're not celebrating relationships that you have. That's not to say there aren't relationships to build. That's not to say there aren't people that you could grow with that you don't know yet. But notice that that doesn't allow us to be in the group we're in with patience. So all is not lost just because we're going to be trapped in this, in this trap doesn't mean we can't do something bad. So he says, find something you like to do. He mentions playing music in my life. I like to eat dinners together. Find something you like to do and just invite people to do it. Who would like to do that thing. If they want to play music with you, invite them to play music. If they want to cook a meal together and sit for two hours, sharing a long meal, invite them to do that. It doesn't matter. Singing totally counts. And just do it regularly and invite those people regularly. And he says, if you do that, you will develop a very specific type of relationship with the people who show up and do that thing with you, sing, share meals, or play music. And that very specific kind of relationship will allow you to sever the trap of the inner ring. And that very specific kind of relationship is called friendship. Friendship gives us the escape from the trap of the inner ring. And now that I've said that, my guess is Andrew, that's entirely true. When you're with your best friends, you don't sit with them worrying if you're cool enough or if there's another group that's cooler than the one you're in right now, you're just with your friends.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel that all the time. In fact, you said your thing is cooking. My thing is, uh, dancing, especially Mm -hmm. kizomba Mm. and, uh, yeah, the group that we normally meet up, that we dance with, kizomba at socials, and even for classes, we've become so such close knit. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when you when you're just talking about this, I can see what you mean. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not just theory; it's actually articulating what I've been experiencing, mm-hmm. and what others experience. Yeah, the friendships, sharing that shared experience, laughing together, making mistakes together, learning the steps together, trying mm-hmm. them out, and then discovering new things.
0: Well, Andrew, my guess is your dancing friends have seen you uh, look like a fool in front of them.
1: <laughs> so many times. <laughs> and uh,
0: they've probably seen you look like a fool in front of dozens of other people.
1: Oh yeah. Okay.
0: And my guess is you've seen them look like a fool dozens of times. Oh yeah. And you feel really connected with them. Yeah. Yeah. You shared vulnerability.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't think about it that way.
0: And they know that you'll be their friend even when they look like an idiot on the dance floor. Am I right?
1: Yes, that's true.
0: That's vulnerability. They know they can be vulnerable in front of you. It's a certain kind of vulnerability, but they don't need to pretend for a minute that they're always cool and graceful when they're around you.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: Just like Tony Stark. He doesn't have to pretend that everything's working all the
1: time. That's true. So I'm wondering how do we create this sort of environment like in businesses? Because I noticed that such an environment, you don't feel limited. You feel that you can fly, you can do anything. And I think probably maybe that's one of the challenges of managers and CEOs trying to cultivate that kind of environment that can have the employees really come out and bring out their abilities regardless of their fears.
0: Yeah. That's a cultural change and it takes a lot of investment over a lot of time. And mm-hmm. usually it needs to come from the top down because, yes. um, that's how culture always happens. It comes from the top down. Usually at levels that always stun the people at the top, how much their m- modeling helps. Yes. Um, one of them is we need to notice when people are failing on the journey to becoming better. Now there's a difference between that and just not doing your job or just not in- paying attention or investing properly or being reckless. Mm. Okay. Cause you can be reckless and say, Oh, I'm failing. Well, yeah, you're being reckless. Right. Like if you, if you invite me to meet your family at a Kenyan festival and I show up drunk, right. That's way <laughs> different than I just don't know Kenyan culture, how it's different from Oakland culture. And, and I'm learning, right. There's totally different things. Yeah. We need to notice when someone is failing on the journey to become better and give them permission to do it but that's not a free car to just fail all the time, right? Or, or accept that. And some people confuse that. That's why I bring it up. And then we need to acknowledge, for example, my son is young and he's not that coordinated yet running and walking. He falls all the time. (laughs) And I could just laugh at him and tell him he's silly because he skins his knee and gets mud in himself. But I know that this is the journey to running well. And so I celebrate every time he falls and stands up because that's the journey. Well, we need to recognize when is it happening with colleagues at work and even make it explicit. When he falls and gets up, so I, I say, good job standing up. I don't say, I can't believe you can't run 30 feet yet,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So just from, from your experience, from all the clients that come to you with their challenges and they need mm-hmm. you as a consultant to help bring them their change, what are the top three that you notice seem to be a recurring theme Oh my goodness.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, I don't know that much about Kenya, Andrew. I do know about the United States and we're in a record era of loneliness and along that record levels of suicide and, um, all kinds of health problems that go along with that. So there are many things that come up everywhere because it's everywhere in our culture. The first one is the disregard for the importance of the time to just build friendships. There's this myth that somehow every minute we're talking, we need to be accomplishing a goal. One of the goals can be to build a friendship that's enduring when there's a crisis. Um, If you ever call me, Andrew, for help, my guess is the first or third conversation we ever have should not be, Hey, Charles, I need help from you now. Whatever your priorities are, whatever your resources are, I want that to be focused on me. If that day is going to come. And obviously when we're working on a team that probably will come We'll need to invest in those conversations beforehand. And that takes time. And if we don't schedule the time, we're not going to build it. I was talking to a major international multi-billion dollar tech company that everybody listening to this podcast has heard of. And they were telling me how their research shows that their employees are not very well connected. Well, that's not a surprise. They live in a culture where people are not connected. so. It's not them. <laughs> it's the culture. <laughs> and I said, fantastic. They said, well, what should we do about it? I said, I don't know. Cause there's a gazillion things I don't know yet about what you're doing, but I have a question when you're onboarding your employees and they have thousands of employees and they spend weeks onboarding them. So many policies to learn, right? How many minutes do you give them to sit in small groups where they have permission to share a conversation that could be intimate and build friendship? How many minutes do you schedule for them to do that? And the person I was talking to just laughed out loud wow. because the number of minutes they're giving them is like not even worth mentioning because they filled all their time with learning policies or sitting in a class or getting a tour. Right? Well, I'm not saying that those policies and those classes, and those tours aren't important, but let's not be surprised when you don't schedule the time for them to be connected in a new company, in a new building, with a new team, maybe in a new project, no surprise. You call them later and find out that they're disconnected. So put in the time, schedule the time. How much time will you tell me how much time you need to make your marriage good? (laughs) Right. Is it more, I don't know how much time it takes to make your marriage good, but I know that it takes more than 15 minutes, probably more than an hour. (laughs) So if you want a good marriage, you may want to schedule more than an hour. That's just my guess. Maybe you'll have a great marriage with an hour a week. Good luck with that. So the first one is time. Uh, notice how you're investing and how you're letting your team invest in time. Well, they have permission to build friendship. The second one is missing invitations. For some reason, in the United States, we're in this culture where people want to skip the invitation and they want to put what I call announcements. An announcement can be a mass email or a posting on social media or maybe even literally a bulletin on a wall. Andrew, in your life, how many events? Have you seen a posting on social media on a wall or in a mass email led to you to have two friendships that are dear to you that you'd call them 3 a.m. if you had a problem? How many? Very few. Any?
1: Yeah, I have a couple.
0: Okay. So we're at like two? Yeah. And you're like over 25 years old? Yeah. So you're telling me less than once every 10 years, uh, an event posted will lead to a friendship that's really important to you.
1: Well, not an event posted, but okay. If it's as a result of that event, yeah, it would be very rare. Right.
0: Less than once every 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at that success rate and acknowledge that that might not be a good strategy (laughs) on building connections (laughs) because in 40 years you'll have like three friends with that strategy. Um, We can, so one of the things we can notice is who are we inviting? What are we inviting them to? And how often are we inviting? If I'm inviting people to one big event every October through a mass email, and then surprised people aren't connected to me, to each other, there should be no surprise. You wanna build more connections? You want people to be more connected? Send out invitations. Maybe there's about 30 other things you can work on, but here's what I do know. If You're not sending out invitations. If people aren't getting invitations, you're definitely not building relationships. You mentioned your, your dancing friends. How many times a year do you get and do you send an invitation to spend time together with this group?
1: Well, in fact, we don't need to send invitations because we meet up every week. So
0: Every week. And there's an implicit understanding that you're invited and they expect you to be there. They'll be happy to see you. Yes. Right. So, so we're talking about at least 50 times a year. Yes. Right. That's way more than once. <laughs>
1: and if you wanted
0: another group to have more friends about that connected if you invited any other group a church group or a philanthropy group or a book reading group 50 times a year you'd have more friends you'd have a bigger community so the second idea we'll just leave you with is look at your invitations if they're missing don't be surprised you're not
1: connected and other people aren't connected wow sounds so simple, but yeah. It is
0: simple, uh, Andrew. It's so simple. I find most people overlook it and don't value it. Like how do you get rid of a headache? Drink water, lay down. (laughs) How many people do you know think, oh, I have a headache. Maybe I should drink water and lay down.
1: Not
0: a (laughs) lot. Right. I don't have friends. Who are you inviting? How about you invite people to things? Andrew's got 50 times a year. It's working for him. Why don't you try 40? See how that works.
1: Mm. And you're mentioning that uh, you have uh, a third point.
0: I'm sure we, I'm happy to bring up a third point. So I find that people who don't understand intimate space or what we call in my forthcoming book, Building Brand Communities, Campfire Experiences. Uh, I'm approached by people and organizations, be they for-profit or non-profit, and they want to build community, but their idea of doing that is create a big event. We call it, for the purposes of teaching, an arena event where you get there and there's just a big arena of people. And my guess, Andrew, if you think of all the events you've been to for the last 30 years, the number of events you went to an arena that you left feeling really connected to people was approximately zero. You're shaking your head. So I'm right. Um, I'm right. It's less, almost zero. And if you did leave an arena event with a good friend or the beginning of a good friend, it was because within that arena, you had what we call a campfire experience on a space where you had cl- proximity to somebody where you could have intimate conversation, you had permission to speak to them. I.e., you didn't have to watch a movie or watch a presentation or listen to someone else talk. And you had enough control over the space around you that if you chose to, you could have an intimate vulnerable conversation. And my guess is that if you left with the beginning of a friendship at one of these rare events, it's because you experienced something that was a campfire experience.
1: Are you a mind reader? This is all on point. Well, I've been thinking about this for a few years, Andrew.
0: <laughs> and the reason I bring this up is if you're in an organization, for-profit, non-profit, political, flat, philanthropic, or faith-based, and you want your people, be they members or employees or customers or constituents <laughs> to feel more connected, notice that when you're inviting them to events, where and how you're giving them access to a campfire experience and not putting them in an arena, you know, having a program for two and a half hours, and then declaring that they should all feel connected. when our own experiences tell us that doesn't work. And along with that, what I notice is when people create these arena events, they often rob us of the context where we could have an intimate conversation, build connection, i.e. there's music playing so loud, we can't even talk to each other. I was invited to a conference where the leaders of the conference rented out a whole restaurant for conference goers to share dinner together, ostensibly so we could connect. And then they hired a band to play so loud that I picked the table the farthest away from the band, the, the band and I still could barely hear the person across from me speak. And I thought, I can't believe they've spent tens of thousands of dollars at buying out a restaurant. And then they made it so loud. We honest to goodness, can't even speak. They're not understanding community. They're understanding uh, a spectacle in this case, a restaurant with a band. There's nothing wrong with spectacle, but guess what? Doesn't let people connect.
1: Wow. Loneliness not a lot of invitations, and not understanding the concept of campfires. Wow. It's so surprising to me how even though this material is focused on entrepreneurs and businesses, for me, I feel it's, it applies to all areas of life as an individual. I can see where I was expecting particular friendships to happen, but I wasn't deliberate in my invitations. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you're sharing all this, I'm like, wow, this is like the missing material that every person needs to read. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, you mentioned about your new book coming up. Please talk a little bit more about that. I'm excited.
0: Right. So building brand communities, how organizations succeed by creating belonging uh, will be released later this year. And it's the follow-up to art of community. In this case, I speak directly to organizational leaders, for-profit, nonprofit, political, faith-based philanthropic who want to invest in building community. In this case, people who care about one another in ways that will serve both the members. That's what makes it a community and serves organizational goals. So for example, one of the firms I interviewed and I've consulted with in the past is Airbnb. And Airbnb understands that it's very important that their hosts around the world are connected. Connected to one another, connected to Airbnb, connected to Airbnb staff, because the hosts provide all their inventory. And when the hosts have problems, the Airbnb staff in San Francisco doesn't have all the answers for regional problems or temporal problems. But other hosts in the area do understand the area and understand the changes. And having them connected and helping each other Helps Airbnb. Mm-hmm. So Airbnb creates dozens and dozens of events in every time zone to connect their hosts, both experience and accommodation. And they want these to be good events. And they know that by connecting these people, it's good for Airbnb. And they want to make it good for the host. They want hosts to get better at participating in the Airbnb community events. And at the end of the year, Airbnb needs to show that they're just not hosting lots of parties. And they're spending Airbnb money to buy food and rent out rooms and just declare victory. They need to know that hosting these events is helping both the hosts get better at being hosts, be who they want to be, and helping Airbnb build a business. It's not one or the other. It has to be both. So there's a great example where there are brand leaders who want to invest in community and they want to win on every level. And so we wrote a book to help them do that. And Airbnb leadership are just some of the people we interviewed. We interviewed people from Twitch, which is an Amazon company with uh, over 150 million subscribers, Uh, Salesforce, which is in every time zone in the world, Harley Davidson, uh, Patagonia. All of these are firms that understand for their success, there are people in the world, customers, employees, uh, colleagues uh, across their industry that make them better when they're all connected. And we've shared those ideas
1: uh, in one book. Wow. So what if, uh, let's say... A kenyan company for example mm-hmm. reads your book and loves the ideas and says you know what We would love if you could give us some access to us mm-hmm. you know and do your research and use this as one of the case studies to expand your, your knowledge base mm-hmm. because as i see as you have your presentation you're aware of the cultural mm-hmm. uh, differences you know your, your your thing is not a one-size-fits-all but it accommodates the differences between different groupings, Mm -hmm. how would, how would such a company be able to connect with you?
0: Well, I can be reached my website, which is charlesvogel.com and you can find it uh, online just searching. Um, Right now I'm, I have clients and I'm full, so I'm not looking for more right now. Uh, What I'm hoping is that the books themselves tell any smart executive enough of the principles that, When you, Andrew, know your culture enough and you apply that, you'll immediately see where you can grow. So for example, you know, one of the things we talk about is the idea that when you create your community, you need to be helping the people who will be members become who they want to be. So Harley-Davidson helps their riders create friendships that go on adventures together and ride their bikes together (laughs) with friends. You're a, you're a better motorcyclist. You become a safer motorcyclist. Uh, they, they offer them classes on safety. They offer them training on how to handle insurance and emergencies. They actually make their members become better motorcyclists and Airbnb. Again, they're training their hosts on how to be better hosts and make better money and make safer decisions. They're becoming better hosts. You need to think through how are that, am I helping them be who they want to be? And if you're not, and all you know is how you want your company to win we want to sell motorcycles or we want to sell hotel rooms. Then you are approaching people with a manipulative, manipulative invitation. Andrew, you're an adult. How many organizations do you want to spend more time with when all they want is manipulative relationship with you? None, none. Exactly right. So that investment would be a really bad one, right? So you can, you can explicitly be in the conversation with your fellow executives How are we actually inviting people to get better? And if we're not, whether we're in denial or not, all we're doing is showing people we're manipulators and they're going to want to get away from us as much as we want to get away from people with that approach. Typically where that happens is when someone creates a a so-called brand community from a marketing perspective and all they want to do is sell. It's okay to want to sell. I buy a lot of gas for my car and I don't want to be in a community about it. I just want to buy gas for my car they're marketing gas, right? (laughs) Fine. But if you're going to invite me to spend my time to be in a community and you haven't thought through how you're helping me grow, I'm just gonna get mad at you. So I don't think you need me to, to fly in and look at everything. You can just answer that question. Um, so I can go on for a long time about this, wrote a whole book. I hope that's enough for now.
1: I think that's enough for now. And thank you very much for your insights and your wisdom. That'll be the end of, uh, you know, all this serious talk. Let's get to something lighter. I, I, mm. love, I love this part of the conversation. Tell me three books that you've either read recently or a while before that have impacted your life. Mm-hmm. Three movies, either recent or uh, from a long time ago. And three songs that you haven't repeat right now. Okay. So
0: the f- first is the, mo- uh, the book. So three <laughs> books that I know that have changed me. The first is The Mystic Heart by Wayne Teasdale, who was a monk who wrote the book in the 90s, in the 1990s. And he looked at the five, at five uh, ancient wisdom traditions and noticed how all of their mystic traditions uh, had overlaps. And how we see these through lines have been going over for more than a thousand years. And one of the things I took away from that book is that um, in all these major traditions, one of the through lines is the diminishment of the ego of the self and the greater the call to action to be generous. And that can be said in many different ways, but that's the through line. And when we find younger traditions that don't have that, that say in so many words, uh, get, what you, get what you can, you need to be powerful, you need to have a lot of stuff, they're actually in sharp contrast to these ancient wisdom traditions that have been serving communities for millennia. That's the mystic heart. Another fil- uh, book is called The Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. It's one of the most famous Uh, 20th century Christian books, period. I know over a million copies have been sold. And I like that because he shares his journey from being someone who had to learn to take his faith seriously and understand how important it was for him. And it wasn't easy. And typically growing in our faith lives, if it's real, isn't easy. And then we start doing things that didn't seem like a good good idea to us earlier, but we learn they're good for us in our journey as we mature. And I think it's great to have a role model saying uh, you will do things you didn't think you would do. And it's not going to always be fun. And that doesn't make it bad. And along Mm -hmm. with that, you know, Thomas Merton uh, sat down, he was actually secluded himself and he wrote many, many books. And I, and he says that even though you want to be active in the world, it's okay to go away and do the hard thinking. And if it takes time, do the writing. Um, That doesn't mean that you're not participating and you're not making a difference. And the last book is Play by Stuart Brown, who's a a Stanford professor. And he studies how play actually changes our brain and with their brain their whole lives. And um, I've actually known Stuart a little bit. And my conversation with Stuart and the wisdom he shares in the book has made me rethink how am I investing in play, how much am I investing in play, and giving that a chance to develop me. And I talk about community a lot. Well, most of us want to participate in communities where it's fun. And if it's not fun, we don't want to participate in it. So how important is it that we understand what makes something fun and then incorporate that when we invite people together? I promise you, Andrew, if you invite me to be in your community and none of it's fun, I will not come. I might come to the first one, and I'm not coming to the second one. (laughs) So I think all of us, understanding how we like to play, understanding how important play is, understanding how we can invite people to play with us, serves our entire lives, because that's how we connect and grow. The three movies, the first one is The Mission from 1986. It won the Academy Award here in the United States, and it really moved me the time I watched it, and I'm still moved by it, because it talks about men of faith, perhaps misguided in many ways, but nonetheless, men of faith committed to going somewhere they'd never been before, in this case, a South American village, and connecting with people unlike them, and then learning that, to love them so much, these villagers, that by the end of the film, these missionaries. Um, are actually giving up their own lives to defend the people that they didn't know before. And it reminds me that as much terrible stuff does happen and has happened, that this journey of going to where we aren't known, connecting with people we don't know, and learning to love them, hasn't gone on for a long time, and we can stand in that tradition. The second film is Little Miss Sunshine from 2006, uh, easily one of my favorite movies of all time. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it tells a story about a young woman and her family who drive across the country so she can participate in a beauty contest for 12-year-old girls. That's the superficial story. The bigger story is how does the family with a lot of problems come together to support somebody who has a dream, even when the resources aren't there and there are tough things going on. And they learn how to put themselves their own needs aside to show up for their whole family. And it's a beautifully written story about a family coming together and understanding how important they are to each other, no matter their own agendas. And then uh, my last film uh, you laughed when I mentioned earlier, but I'm serious. It's Spider-Man two from 2004, (laughs) a film that has brought me to tears in the past. And I'm sure will again. And it's because Spider-Man has to always learn the same lesson over and over. And it's a lesson I have to learn over and over. And that's no matter how powerful he is, He wants to make a difference that he's not strong enough to do by himself. And for him to do it, he has to learn to let other people hold him up and he Mm. needs to let them do it more than he wants to do it. More often he wants to do it and in ways that surprise him and Spider-Man too, if you've seen it, uh, Andrew, and he has the fight on the subway and he loses the Doc Ock and he loses his mask and he's knocked unconscious. What happens? The very people he was trying to save on the subway, physically lift him up and they carry him to safety and he had to learn to let the people he was trying to be responsible for hold him up when he couldn't do it himself and he has to learn it over and over and over again and my guess is a number of us have to keep learning it
1: too wow that's powerful
0: and then the last your question was three songs so right now all my heroes by the bleachers the song whenever it comes on and moves me because he wrote the song that i couldn't with the line, all my heroes got tired. And about you, Andrew, Andrew, in my lifetime, I want to make a big difference. And I never can make a difference as big as I want to. And I look at my heroes and they got tired. And if they got tired, then maybe it's okay that I get tired. And the fact that somebody wrote a song acknowledging his heroes got tired really moves me. Um, I'm a big fan of the Enemy UK right now, a big hit pop band out of the UK and uh, one of the songs I like is You're Not Alone, um, largely because they're reminding all of their fans that uh, we are not doing this by ourselves ever. And then another song I get really excited on when it comes back on my list is the song You Will Be Found from the Dear Evan Hansen soundtrack, um, a song written in an era of loneliness by uh, playwrights who understood that there's a lot of loneliness, and they're singing an anthem that reminds people that if you reach out and you call, you will be found. And in an era of loneliness, a lot of people don't call out. And sometimes that's the difference. And so anything that reminds us, if you call out, you will be found. Um, is an anthem we need to hear.
1: Wow. So, so powerful. You know, it's even just leaving me speechless, you know. Thank you so much for sharing. And uh, yes, one last question. A lot of people have been asking me this. And so uh, I'll pose it as a question to you. Mm. Um, a lot of people are curious about the the title of my podcast, mm. "Revenge of the Forsaken Gods." What do you think it means?
0: I don't know what it means. I could make wild guesses that would come across mm. as wild guesses.
1: I don't know. Yeah, if that's make helpful. A wild guess. Make, make a wild <laughs> guess in relation to our whole conversation.
0: Well, well the question is, does it refer to polytheistic uh, cosmology? And if it does, then this idea, then. Um, In this era, we are distracted by more material concerns and priorities, and that has led to problems that were addressed when we turned to something bigger than ourselves that tied us together. And uh, the revenge, I think, is tongue-in-cheek in in this idea that um, they want to reassert the importance of that experience in our culture. That's a wild guess.
1: Nice. Very wild, but uh, hey. You know, it's a very good one. I'm not going to say yes or no. Uh, You know, I'm learning from the master. Very good guess. It can apply to any situation. And uh, do you have any last words? We've talked about
0: a great deal of stuff. Uh, What I like to leave people with is this understanding is we can talk about community all we want and we can talk about the principles and the state of our cultures, it it all really doesn't matter. The only thing that actually matters is that we notice who we want to be connected to and recognize they probably want to be connected to somebody too. And we reach out, invite people to connect with us. And later, we can worry about all the complicated stuff. But at the end of the day, it starts with you, Andrew, and the people you know, usually picking up a phone and making an invitation to spend the time to connect. And uh, community does happen. It always happens the same way, one invitation at a time.
1: Wow. And my main takeaway is friendships are deliberate, just the same way as regular work is deliberate. And, yeah, and you have to put in the, the time and effort to build a friendships, to build those communities. Mm-hmm.
0: Look at your life and notice what you didn't invest in and how, how that stuff turned out.
1: Wow. Thank you very much. My guest is Charles H. Vogel. And uh, apart from your website, uh, charlesvogel.com, how else can people reach out to you?
0: That's the best way to do it. There's a contact link there and it uh, eventually gets to me.
1: Uh, Your first book, Art of Community, has impacted my life. I, I know I'll be going back to it several times because of the power of the questions in there. And thank you for your journey. Continue sharing your work and yourself and your truth and being vulnerable and continue building awesome communities and impacting leaders around you and all around the world. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Charles H. Vogel, the author of The Art of Community, Seven Principles of Belonging, and his new book, Building Brand Communities, How Organizations Succeed by Creating Belonging, is coming out on June 9th, 2020. So pre-order your copy right now on Amazon.com. If you haven't read his previous book, The Art of Community, this is your opportunity to order it now. Has this conversation helped you learn anything about yourself and how you relate to whatever group that you're in, whether it's family, friends, school, faith-based organization, business, or career? First, send a tweet to Charles at Charles Vogel, that's Charles V-O-G-L, to show your appreciation. Secondly, I would love to know what key takeaway that you got from this. Please share in the comment section below if you're watching on YouTube or tweet at revenge underscore gods. If you think this conversation will be beneficial to your friend or anyone in a leadership position or anyone who would love to be a leader, share this with them. Like and subscribe on YouTube and please leave a review on any of your favorite podcast platforms as it helps the podcast grow. Thank you for all of you who have listened to my podcast up till now. You can get all the resources from our conversation at my blog, blog. Thank you for listening. Have a great day and tune in next week for another interesting conversation on the Revenge of the Forsaken Gods podcast.